All right, good morning, church. How are you? All right. That being the case, let's open up to Mark chapter 11. Open your Bible, navigate on your device, follow along. Mark chapter 11, we're going to put in at verse 12. The topic, Jesus encounters a fig tree full of leaves, having no figs growing underneath them. The title of our message, fig no grow, fig no grow, fig no grow. Thank you, thank you. And now Gene will come out and teach. But anyway, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our study this morning. And we appreciate, Lord, that uh, you give us the gift of humor and joy. We also know that you can divide between the soul and the spirit and that your word of God is powerful and alive. And, and that's what we're seeking now. Just to sit under the teaching of your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, revealing to us, Lord, things that are necessary and things that are wonderful. We know that you want to do more than we ask or think, and so we just wait upon you. We do it in Jesus' name, and those who agree said, amen. They were off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Dorothy was following the yellow brick road so that the wizard would send her home. She met the scarecrow who wanted a brain, the tin woodman who wanted a heart, and the cowardly lion who was in need of courage. They were each convinced the wizard would help them. They made it to Emerald City where they were initially rejected by the wizard. They finally got in to see him only to quickly discover that everything was a facade. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, my favorite line in the whole movie. He urged them, but it was too late. He had been exposed as all show and no substance. In our verses, Jesus encounters a fig tree that is all show and no substance. It has put out its leaves, indicating there will be an abundant amount of fruit underneath, but upon inspection, no figs are to be found. In what seems to be a bizarre, almost out-of-character, destructive miracle, Jesus condemns the fig tree, and it withers from the roots and dies. If that isn't weird enough, Jesus uses the occasion to say that if you have enough faith, you can toss a mountain into the sea. It has all the earmarks of an environmental disaster movie. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Obviously, there's a lot going on here. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, check for fruit underneath your leaves. And number two, check for faith behind your labor. Let's talk about fruit and leaves for a minute in verses 12 through 14. It was revenge for all battered vending machines. In the film, The Sum of All Fears, the terrorist bomb that exploded was hidden in a cigarette vending machine at a professional sporting event in Baltimore, Maryland. If you admit it, I know you've severely beaten a vending machine at one time or another. In the break room, out in public, it starts off innocently enough. You don't get your gum You don't get your money back. And so you think somehow that hitting the side of the machine is going to help. It's going to knock something loose. Or maybe hitting the front of it. Or maybe if you could tilt it like a pinball machine, that'll help. And depending on the crowd, that turns into abusive violence at some point. Where you're just beating that thing to death. Deborah Johnson was caught on a surveillance camera shoving newspaper up into a 7-Up machine outside a Piggly Wiggly in New Bern, North Carolina. 
She then lit the newspaper on fire, grabbed the soda from a different vending machine and walked away. The fire melted the vending machine, destroying its contents and about $35 and change. When she was uh, asked if she was guilty, she says, I sure am and I would do it again. (laughs) She fessed up to it. Now, I want to assure you, that was not what Jesus was doing to this fruitless fig. In fact, his actions are deeply symbolic and significant, both for the nation of Israel and to individuals like ourselves. So let's get into it in verse 12. Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Any description of Jesus' physical condition always reminds me of the wonder of his uniqueness as the God-man. Jesus was eternally God. He never ceased to be God. In his incarnation, born of a virgin, Jesus was fully human. He rose from the dead in a glorified human body in which he will remain eternally. He is the eternal God-man. Now, while he was on the earth, he chose to not use the prerogatives of his deity. Instead, he depended upon the leading of the Holy Spirit. Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest writes, and he says, Our Lord lived his life on earth usually as the man, Christ Jesus. He was revealing deity to humanity. And how else could he do that except in human terms, in a human body, with human limitations, and a human life lived among men? Now, on this occasion, he was led by something as common as hunger, to see a fig tree. The Holy Spirit would use that to teach an incredible lesson. Be aware of even the smallest things and expect God to use them to minister to you and to others. I'm not saying everything that happens in your day has a spiritual meaning or a second meaning or uh, is metaphorical, but I do think we miss a lot of things hurrying through our day, things that God can speak to us about. Now, verse 13, seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. I can't believe how much is written by Bible commentators regarding the growth cycle of the Mediterranean fig. And the problem is they all have it differently to try and explain whether there should or shouldn't have been figs and when the leafing happens and all of that kind of thing. And so they all disagree. I couldn't find any real agreement on that. Now, the growth cycle, though, isn't important. Only the observable fact that the fig tree had leaves. What about Mark's comment, it was not the season for figs? If figs were not in season, why would Jesus expect to find any? And more importantly, if figs were not in season... What had the fig tree done wrong? Well, the solution to all of this seems to be that the tree was prematurely in leaf, growing in some sheltered spot, and it was therefore reasonable to expect a premature crop of figs. And so verse 14, in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. The Lord condemned the tree, not just because of its fruitlessness, but because of its fruitlessness in the midst of a leafy display which promised fruit. It looked like and gave off the signals like it was going to have abundant fruit. And so let's get right to the point. The fig tree represents Israel. The prophet Hosea said, quoting God, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. And so God says the fig tree represents Israel. It doesn't simply represent Israel as a symbol. It tells the spiritual condition of Israel. 
So when God talks about Israel as the fig tree or as figs in the Bible, he also says something about the condition of the nation at the time. For example, an entire chapter of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 24, tells of two baskets of figs. One is very good and the other is very bad. God explained to Jeremiah that they represented the spiritual condition of the Jews around the time of King Nebuchadnezzar's invasion from Babylon. Those who were good, he would protect and keep through the Babylonian captivity. Those who were bad were headed to judgment. So the fig tree doesn't just represent Israel as a symbol, it also tells you something about the condition, the spiritual condition of the nation. And by the way, the fig tree isn't the only fruit-bearing plant that represents Israel. We also read of the vine and the olive tree representing Israel. We're used to picking one, a national tree, a state flower. Why we have to limit ourselves to one, I don't know. Uh, And so a lot of times, well, Israel isn't the fig tree, it's the olive tree. No, it's the vine. It's all of those things as God mixes these metaphors to teach us various things. Now, the fig tree Jesus encountered was leafy with the promise of finding abundant fruit under its leaves. Upon inspection, it was absolutely fruitless. It's a perfect illustration of the nation of Israel that Jesus encountered during his earthly ministry. Israel was all leaf and no fruit. Outwardly, there was the magnificent temple built up for the Jews by King Herod. They had the priesthood and its sacrificial system. They had the scriptures. We would say Israel had leaves in abundance. But Jesus shows us beneath the leaves, under the facade, the men most powerful among the Jews, the ones recognized as the most spiritual, were plotting to kill Jesus illegally. In the temple, the priests were running scams on the people by selling pre-approved animals for sacrifice and by charging exorbitant rates to exchange their provincial coins for the required temple currency. Leading up to this event, Jesus had been exposing first century Judaism as an outward attempt at being righteous that was having no effect on the inward person. It was a system of self-righteousness that promised salvation by outward works, but it could never deliver on its promise. Jesus said that the religious leaders were heaping burdens on the people and not lifting a finger to help them. At one point, Jesus made a similar observation by calling the religious leaders whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they looked good, but inwardly, he said, you're full of dead man's bones. It's all a facade masking a gigantic spiritual failure. Now, we are not the fig tree, and by we, I mean the church and the individual believers who comprise the church. We are, however, disciples, and we are therefore expected to bear fruit. Jesus said in John 15, my true disciples produce much fruit. This brings great glory to my Father. And he also said in Matthew 7, by their fruits, you will know them. Most of us have memorized the fruits of the Spirit listed in the book of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Scholars like to point out that there is really only one fruit of the Spirit, and that is love. And these other words are descriptors of the kind of love that is produced by the Holy Spirit. Now having said that, there are other things besides love that are considered spiritual fruit in our lives. For example, the Apostle Paul regarded those he had helped lead to Jesus as fruit. 
he wrote to the Christians at Rome and he said, I purpose to come unto you that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. He was talking about preaching the gospel and seeing people get saved and he said that is fruit. Then he thought of financial support as fruit. He commended the church at Philippi as the only church that had sent an offering to help defray his expenses on his missionary trips and he called such gifts fruit that would abound to their account. Genuine traits of godly character are called fruit. Uh, in Ephesians 5.9 it says, For the fruit of the Spirit is goodness and righteousness and truth. And so what you conclude is that there is no complete list anywhere in the New Testament of the fruit that can be produced in our lives. And so it might be better to describe what we are looking for as fruitfulness in general. In other words, am I a fruitful Christian bringing forth those things that are pleasing to the Lord? Pastor Chuck Smith used to put it this way. He said, the whole idea is that of being fruitful. The primary desire of my life is to bear good fruit for Jesus. No other accomplishments that I may achieve are as important as this. One day when I stand before him to give an account of my life, this is all that will really matter. How do you become fruitful? Well, fruit is a byproduct of a plant existing in healthy conditions. Spiritual fruit is a byproduct of your healthy relationship with the Lord. As you abide in Christ, it just develops naturally. It's not something that is forced, and it's not something that you have to struggle to produce. You simply have to yield and abide in Christ. Now, it's still possible to have a lush and leafy exterior, but have no fruit underneath. All false religions can be described that way, to a certain extent, because they present only outward requirements for pleasing God. And so whatever religion that you name... They have a certain amount of requirements and they say if you do these things and do them a certain way or in a certain order, then you will please God. In other words, you put on these leaves uh, and and when God sees all that leafy growth, he's going to be awfully excited about you. Now now Jesus, of course, comes along and, and he says... Even in Judaism, which is the system that God gave the Jews, the idea wasn't to be self-righteous and produce leaves. It was to produce fruit. And that can't be done apart from a personal relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And so there's still a lot of leafy works of righteousness that can't save you. Then there are groups that flat out say you must do certain things in order to be saved. The two that come immediately to mind that kind of float through Christian groups are water baptism and speaking in tongues. Uh, There are groups that say that if you're not water baptized, you cannot be saved. And there are other groups that say the evidence you are saved is that you speak in other tongues. The answer to both of those is no. Because you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing. Water baptism, certainly important. Jesus commanded us to be water baptized as an outward show of the inward work. But it is not a part of what it means to be saved. Speaking in tongues, entirely different matter, absolutely has nothing to do with whether you're saved or not. 
The Bible says clearly in 1 Corinthians, do all speak with tongues in a list where it's saying that not everybody has certain spiritual gifts. You may be blessed with the supernatural gift of speaking in tongues. You may not be. has nothing to do with your salvation. It really doesn't even have anything to do with whether you're spiritual or not. Because when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, look, you're all speaking in tongues all the time, all at once. And quite honestly, people think you're crazy. And so let me tell you how you should be doing this. And so those things get us off track. They are leafy exterior things that are not necessary for salvation. On an individual basis, Christians can emphasize how spiritual they are based on their outward works. Indeed, some of the people who are the most admired in churches are esteemed for all the wrong reasons. They seem successful. They seem well-to-do. They're well-spoken. They promote certain standards that you must achieve in order to be like them. You even get the impression that somehow they are better than you. They're more spiritual than you for what they don't do. But it's all for show. Jesus is looking at the heart. Check to see if there is genuine and juicy spiritual fruit being produced as you abide with the Lord. As we end our service this, week, this morning, as we do every week, uh, you'll have time to wait on the Lord. And this is one of the things that you can talk to him about. Say, Lord, how leafy am I? And, and what are you finding underneath? Is it the kind of fruit that you want to produce in my life? And he'll minister to you. Now, we also want to check for faith behind your labor. We're deliberately going to skip verses 15 through 19. We'll get to them the next time we're together in Mark. Mark is giving us events in chronological order during the last week of Jesus' ministry on earth. We want to take them in their logical order. Mark introduces us to the fruitless fig tree, then Jesus visits the temple. He finishes the story of the fig tree in verses 20 through 26. Those are the verses we're going to look at this morning because they go together logically with what we've just studied. Verses 15 through 19, Mark shows us Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. He finishes that story in verses 27 through 33. Those verses go together logically. We'll look at them together next time. So verse 20... Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now obviously they could not see the roots, but from what they could see, it was evident that the fig tree was dried up from the roots, never to recover. It didn't just look sickly, it didn't just look like it needed some miracle grow. I mean, it was dead. No leaves, dead from the roots. And we often use the expression, the root of the problem, and we also speak of being dry in our relationship with Jesus. If you're feeling dry, get to the root of the problem. Uh, Many times it's sin in our lives. That's why we're feeling dry, because we're harboring sin and it's it's interfering in our fellowship with the Lord. Other times, uh, we're just not abiding with the Lord as we should. Uh, We've given up on devotions, we all get busy and we push the Lord aside and we're just not in that vital relationship with him. Now, we're not putting a burden on anybody, we don't, I don't drive by your house and look for candlelight to see if at five in the morning you're having your morning devotions. I will say an inordinate amount of people text me at five in the morning. Uh, Luckily, I have that robot app that says, God bless you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm usually up at 5 in the morning, not necessarily because I want to be, but because my cats get me up at 4.30. They will not sleep past 4.30. Please don't give me suggestions. I love them. Uh, Anyway, it's a personal problem with me. My little kitty is so sweet. Anyway, 
Verse 21. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Have you ever sent a text message that was misunderstood? One time, while we were babysitting Gino, he was a lot, he must have been a year old around that time, it's a few years ago. I texted to a group, I have the baby, which by the way is a line of dialogue from the film Willow. One of the folks who received my text thought it was the kidnapper trying to make contact with me to arrange for ransom. I have the baby. (laughs) They wanted to know how to proceed. Did you get that text? They've got your baby. I said, no, no, I have. It took me a while even to figure it out, but I understand now. I'm not sure what to make of Peter's statement. I can't tell what his intent really was. At the very least, however, he was making note of the power Jesus had wielded to so uh, completely kill this tree. Like it or not, the withering of the fig tree was a miracle. It's an odd miracle, but it was a display of immense power over nature nonetheless. I can kill anything that can be planted. Anything that's growing around my house is growing wild and naturally. It's all something that a bird dropped and is growing on its own. And I say, have a field day, you know, because I kill everything. But I don't kill it immediately. It doesn't just rot away when I walk by. It takes some time and effort on my part to kill it. This was just gone. The next day it was wiped out. And this is a miracle. Verse 22, so Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. What? What does having faith in God have to do with a dead tree? This seems like the weirdest answer Jesus could have possibly given. Well, Jesus is letting them know that the nation of Israel was headed into a time of judgment. In the meantime, the disciples would be sent into the world to preach the gospel to all nations. They would need power to accomplish their task. Jesus thus launched into a talk about the power of God that would be available to them and how to pray to receive it. This is why we're always talking about how important context is to understanding scripture. Jesus didn't just say this out of nowhere. We're in a time where the Lord is saying the kingdom is going to uh, be postponed and you guys are going to be reassigned and your assignment is going to be to go throughout the world preaching the gospel and you're going to need power to do it. That's the context. And what Jesus is saying is that if I can display such mighty power to make a true fruitless, imagine what I can do to make you disciples fruitful. Verse 23, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Uh, Excuse me? Can I change the topography of the earth through prayer if I have enough faith in God? I've often wanted to level out Highway 395 between Four Corners and Atalanto. You ever ridden that? The only thing, I I hesitate to do it with my great faith uh, because there are a few of those dips where if you catch it just right and accelerate, you're almost airborne coming off the top. It's better than screaming over California. You get, especially when you have the little kids in their car seats and they say, watch this, whoa, and their stomachs are going like this. Of course, then you're off to the side of the road vomiting, but that's, you know, <laughs> what's a little vomit among friends? Anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, it, literally, this would be a modern interpretation of it. Say, hey, let's just level out Highway 395, which, by the way, would not be such a good idea 
I'm sure the engineers took into account flash floods and water planes and things like that. So what I think should be level uh, probably needs to have a little bit of terrain to it. Uh, but So is that, is that really what Jesus is saying? Well, if you travel to Israel, you can visit the Mount of Olives today. That's the mountain Jesus was referring to when he said, this mountain. In the many centuries since Jesus first said, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed, no one has ever done it. For over 2,000 years, either no saint has had that kind of faith or Jesus must have meant something different. I know there have been great men and women of faith, not just in the Bible, but in church history. So he must have meant something entirely different. At this point, we mostly backpedal and start explaining what Jesus did not mean usually explaining general thoughts about praying in the will of God. In other words, we make excuses for why we don't see powerful results as we pray. And so we we say, no, Jesus meant this, but he really didn't mean it if you really study these other passages. I got to thinking, instead of approaching it that way, I got to thinking, what did the guys who originally heard these words think they meant? And we can determine what they thought Jesus meant by listening to them pray. And so Jesus said, here's some thoughts I have on prayer and faith and belief. And these guys are the ones who initially received this. And so what did they think Jesus meant? Well, Peter was involved in a group prayer in the book of Acts. In chapter 3, Peter and John healed the lame man who sat in the temple. It's the guy that they were walking by and Peter fixed his gaze on him and said, silver and gold, I have none, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. They go leaping and jumping and praising God into the temple and then then Peter and John preach the gospel to the crowd there. Then they're taken into custody by the Jewish authorities for preaching the gospel. It was the time that they said to the authorities, uh, you decide we need to obey God rather than men. After being threatened and released, here's how they prayed. They said, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, what I found fascinating is what happened immediately after they prayed this prayer. It says in Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. There was an earthquake. So think about it. In our verses in Mark, Jesus coupled prayer with casting a mountain into the sea. In Acts, Peter prayed and an earthquake ensued. He didn't pray for the earth to shake. He prayed for boldness and the earth shook as a token that the prayer had been answered. In other words, You can be sure you've received the power that you're asking for because I just shook the earth. And if I'm able to do that, then I'm able to do this. Jesus wasn't telling us to pray for mountains to be cast into the sea. The promise of Jesus was that they could have power to share the gospel that was greater than the power it takes to cast a mountain into the sea. And so the idea is that, yeah, I believe that God could do that. He could do it through me with enough faith But what he's really talking about is an immense amount of power in the Holy Spirit to accomplish the task. Listen to this from the Old Testament. Maybe you're skeptical that I'm just kind of reaching here, but here's a confirmation of the same thing. And it may have even been on Jesus' mind. I mean, Jesus obviously knew the Old Testament. 
and could draw from it. And here's a couple of verses. This is Zechariah 4, 6, and 7. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, which, by the way, I want to suggest that as a baby name. Zerubbabel. It's just, it's filled with just, I mean, can't you just see the little baby? Zerubbabel. You could call him Bubble or Bubba. I mean, it's just great. I'm, I'm just, you know, the whole thing. Anyway, he says to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a level plain. Zerubbabel was tasked with... (laughs) He was tasked with rebuilding the temple after the Babylonian captivity. It was tough going. God promised him the power to accomplish his task. It was a power greater than that which would be needed to level a high mountain. He says, Zerubbabel, I'm going to give you my spirit to accomplish this task as if you were saying to a mountain, level yourself, and that's the kind of power it's going to be. And so let's read verse 23 again with all that in mind. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Jesus wasn't giving his followers a blank check to alter the topography of the earth. He was telling them, as he had told Zerubbabel, that we are assured power from heaven for our mission. Peter and company prayed for boldness. If we pray like they did for boldness, then you will have whatever you say. Boldness is produced in us by God the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised his followers we could ask and seek and knock and we would receive more of the Holy Spirit. See, all of this fits together so beautifully. In the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? And so now you're thinking, man, I can ask and seek and knock and beat down the door of heaven and I will get the answer to my prayer. And then Jesus says, here's what I'd like you to pray for, verse 13 of Luke 11. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I mean, Lord, you're not talking about my Corvette? I've been beating that door for a long time. He says, no, I'm talking about more of the Holy Spirit. Now, God promises to give you his spirit. Now, since you're already a believer and dwelt by him, he must mean more of the Holy Spirit coming upon you with boldness. A lot of people shirk back. They say, oh, you're adding to the word of God. Peter, who was evidently filled with the spirit on the day of Pentecost, later in the book of Acts, prays and has a fresh filling of boldness, so much so that the place they were praying in shook. Whatever you have, if you pray and believe God by faith, and I'm suggesting that the whatever here is the Holy Spirit. So instead of being apologetic about not receiving answers to our prayers, we ought to get excited that Jesus will answer our prayers for boldness by the Holy Spirit. So verse 24, therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. 
Now this second whatever seems to be a little bit more inclusive of other things beyond the Holy Spirit. So what are these whatevers? Well again, let's look at how a real man of faith prayed. The Apostle Paul records many of the things he prayed for. In fact, you want a great devotional study? Go through the New Testament and read all of the prayers of the Apostle Paul and study those. It shows you how you and I ought to be praying. His prayers are mostly related to furthering the gospel or to the growth of the Christians that he encountered, whether he had led them to Christ or whether someone else had done that. Paul focused a lot of his prayer energy and time on getting the gospel out, on God opening doors, and on the growth of the church. When Peter heard these words Jesus spoke that we just read, and when Paul became aware of them after he was saved, these guys evidently thought Jesus meant whatever things you asked for was intended for mission-critical stuff, for furthering the gospel, and for building the church. Not just anything we might think of, even in our personal lives, but for mission-critical stuff so that the gospel would go forth. Israel was going to be disciplined. The kingdom of God on earth would be postponed, awaiting the second coming of Jesus after the seven-year tribulation on the earth. After Jesus' ascension into heaven and before the tribulation, followers of Jesus are tasked with going into all the world, preaching the gospel and making disciples of all men. Does that sound like a daunting task to you? Reduce it down to just yourself. Let's say you're the last Christian on earth and Jesus says to you, I've got, a, I've got a task for you. I want you to go into all the world preaching the gospel and everything depends on you. Well, that's not gonna work at all. It seems insurmountable. It's like a giant mountain peak in my way that's impossible to climb. I will never get over that hump except for the power of God. By his Holy Spirit who can level that mountain or cast it into the sea if he wants to. We have 2,000 years of the history of the church obliterating mountains around the world as the gospel was preached with Holy Spirit boldness. Almost nothing is as weak on one plane as the church of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross... He was down to just 120 believers in the upper room by the time he rose from the dead, right? I mean, there was a small group, and they still weren't ready. And so the church seems weak. Nevertheless, iron curtains, great walls of China, third reichs, none of what evil men inspired by Satan attempted could halt the building of this church. Instead, Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, let alone any puny mountain that we might think stands in our way. And so this is what these verses are about. They're about the mission of the gospel. Verse 25, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. You know what I get out of these verses in context? Jesus is telling us to quit playing church and be the church. We're on a mission deep behind enemy lines. Satan is the god of this world. Most of the kingdoms of men are post-Christian or they're anti-Christian. People are perishing without hearing the gospel. Christians are being persecuted and martyred every day for their faith. Do we really have time to argue about the color of carpet in our sanctuary? 
If you look at that lit- the litany of things I just mentioned about what's really going on in the world, do we have time to argue about petty things in the church? And yet, how many of you could tell stories about petty things that split churches, divided churches, uh, that Christians still aren't talking to each other today because they voted the wrong way on whether to have carpet or tile and things like that. We get all wrapped up in things that are absolutely not important. They're not essential while the rest of the world is perishing. And so I think what Jesus is saying is stay on task. Seriously, we need to dial back our personal sensitivities and be a little bit more tough-skinned for the sake of the gospel. What about this matter of God not forgiving our trespasses? Well, William McDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary explains it well. He says, this does not refer to the judicial forgiveness of sins at the time of conversion. That is strictly a matter of grace through faith. In other words, he says, God's not talking about whether you're saved or not or forfeiting your salvation. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and on your way to heaven. But, he says, this refers to God's parental dealings with his children. An unforgiving spirit in a believer breaks fellowship with the Father in heaven and hinders the flow of blessing. You will hinder the reception of the Holy Spirit that you're praying for if you're harboring unforgiveness. Rise above pettiness. Be about the mission of the gospel. Because the time is short and people need that message. Jesus is telling us to have faith. He's telling us to believe that we will be empowered by the Holy Spirit for our labor in the gospel. So the question here is, are you? Are you Holy Spirit filled for laboring in the gospel? If not, ask and seek and knock, then have faith to believe that your heavenly Father will give you the Holy Spirit. That's where the faith comes in. God says, I am definitely wanting to and going to give you the Holy Spirit. All you have to do is pray for him and believe that I'm doing that and then go out and make disciples of all men. Amen?